brought to you by Prep Matters and the upcoming book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Kids wanting to help is the norm around the world. Like, again, this is something really weird that happens in Western culture where kids lose the uh, desire and motivation to help. So if you look at little toddlers, you know, all around the world, even here in San Francisco, where I am, they are, they want to be helpful. Everyone knows this, right? And something happens over the next five or six years that, that they lose that motivation in Western culture. So it's something actually that we're doing too, that's eroding that motivation, mm. right? Um, so I just want to point that out. It's not just the Mayan. The Mayan are actually more normal than, than we are um, in, in that sense. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Dr. Michaeline Duclef, the author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Dr. Duclef is a global health correspondent for NPR Science Desk and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hunt, Gather, Parent. The book describes a way of raising kind and confident children, which moms and dads all over the world have turned to for millennia. Dr. Duclef has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Berkeley, California, and a bachelor's degree in biology from Caltech. For the past decade, Dr. Duclef has reported on disease outbreaks and children's health for NPR. Before that, she was the editor at the journal Cell, where she wrote about the science behind pop culture. She lives in San Francisco with her husband, daughter, and German shepherd, Savannah. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is quite a pleasure. Oh, so good. So um, before we jump into talking about this just, just terrific book, um, I'd love for you to share a little bit, um, just talk a little bit more about your your work um, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a science correspondent, some of the, thing, the work that you've done before this book, um, because the book is such a beautiful account of these, of these communities where you spent um, so much time and, and, and so much care. But I'd love to hear a little bit about the science behind things we could. Yeah, I mean, so... I've been at NPR now almost 10 years and every most of the time I spend at my desk reporting on very sciencey, very sciencey things, very, very hardcore chemistry, which I love. But every mm. now and then NPR would like send me out somewhere, oftentimes for a disease outbreak or to like, you know, investigate some exotic disease that was happening somewhere in the world. I went to West Africa, Liberia during the Ebola outbreak. They sent me um, up to the Arctic to investigate viruses thawing in the permafrost mm. um, up to a little Inuit village called Kotzebue, which I think is really probably one of the beginning points of this book. Um, yeah. While I was up there, it was the first time I really saw or I really opened my eyes to parenting in, in, in other cultures and non-Western cultures um, and, and kind of started to get rid of some of the bias, like 
like saying like, oh, maybe there's something better out there. I think that was the first mm -hmm. time it really kind of hit me. They also sent me um, in 2017 to, or 2016 to uh, Malaysia where a researcher with Eco Health Alliance, actually we were standing in a bat cave, told me and the producer that there was gonna be, that there could be a massive coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> And which would like, um, you know, have this devastating Holy economic smokes. impact. Yeah, yeah. And actually, when he said like how much the economic impact could be, both me and the producer like rolled our eyes. We were just like, right, sure. Um, but he was dead on. Oh my gosh. Have, have, we, have, you, have you sent an email to that person saying, I am so sorry that you were so right? <laughs> yes, we have, to, we have talked since then. Um, so... I think what happened though after after going up to the Arctic is is like I said I when I went on these trips again I really started to pay attention to the parents and the children and slowly over time it took it took a couple of years I really started to realize um, that there was kind of this gold mine of parenting mm. knowledge out there that I think really hadn't been discussed much in the parenting literature um, and. I finally started to read more about it. And, I, you know, of course I've read some of da David Lancey's work, you know, the mm -hmm. anthropologist. And um, and after reading his book, I started the, the story that I really wanted to do and where this began was, was attention. Um, there had been some studies on Maya kids having much better attention in certain situations than European American kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to know why. At the time, Rosie was, too. And I, I, I really didn't think like, oh, I'm going to figure out a better way to parent. I'm going to figure out a better way for me to parent. I was just more interested in the science of it and like, yeah, you know, yeah. what were my parents doing or what was the life um, circumstances that were leading to this better development of attention. Um, and so NPR sent me down to this little tiny Maya village with uh, on the, in the Yucatan. And we spent four or five days there, me and a producer, you know, really long hours in, in the family's homes. Um, interviewing them, you know, it takes time, especially with language barriers, and, and it takes time to develop relationships with people. And we spent hours and hours, and I started to really realize, wow, there is this other way to parent that mm. um, that not only seemed a lot easier, like the parents seemed, both the moms and the dads, you know, seemed much more relaxed, um, not so frazzled, not stressed, um, but also very effective. The kids were you know, are kind and calm and respectful. I mean, not perfect by any stretch, but there definitely seemed to be just so much less resistance from the parents and then back, you know, from the children. And um, and I left there really wondering what was what's going on. Um, but it took, a, a, again, more time um, and another trip for me to really be convinced, like, okay, there's something that need, that could be like a book or that could be this, a, mm. there's something bigger out there. No, no. Uh, you make the point that um, not only a different model for the, uh, the the different model for parenting and what we knew about parenting and kind of the Western model, but you you then in the in the book talk about how in many ways it's not just parenting uh, parenting that has a Western bias. It's really all of psychology mm. kind of has this Western bias. Can you just talk for a minute about how how weird to use that wonderful term? How weird uh, we in the states and and folks like us are compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, this is such a, an important part of it. Um, if you look at like Western psychology, and this is from about 10 years ago, but I, I think that um, it hasn't improved a lot. Mm. Um, you look at 
studies and about 96% of the studies are performed on a, on a very specific mm. group of people. So mostly European American, but also middle, middle class, middle upper class, and oftentimes the very uh, college kids, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So European Americans make up about 12% of the population. So we're seeing a very small slice of, of humanity in psychological studies, which is fine, you know, if you're, if you're studying Western people, the problem is, is that it's often written as, as um, representative of the, of, of humans, right? Mm -hmm. this, this is, you know, European American college kids are, 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 are you know, um, representing all of the world, all of the people. And the biggest problem with it is, is that if you look, actually, European American people behave really strangely in a lot of psychological experiments. Um, and and so it's not only that we have a the, the psychology research has a bias in the sense that we are often only looking at a very small slice of humanity. That slice of humanity is very strange, <laughs> and the indigenous populations tend to be kind of cluster closer together and tend to behave a little bit more similar similarly. Um, David Lancy kind of at the same time was um, doing similar research when it comes to parenting and he found like 50 things that we do as parents um, that are really strange and you don't find anywhere else in the world and you and and you don't find really probably through through most of human history so let's pivot then so introduce us a little bit then to these three communities that you look at um we, you know we won't go into every detail of it because of course that's what a book is about but you know give us an overview of uh, tell us about you know the 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 minds and the Inuits and the Azabi. Yeah. So um, I, there's three main communities in the book and the idea is to look at them kind of specifically and then see where the like generalities are, right? Where, you know, can, through the research, uh, through, the, through the literature, like, can you see how these populations do things that you can find really in many, many places, including pockets of the U.S. right now um, and many, many places in the U.S. not that long ago. Um, so the I chose the three groups because they really shine in aspects of parenting that Western culture has struggles with right now. So the Maya communities, and this has been really well documented by work of Susan Gaskins, Lucia Alcala, and um, Barbara Rogoff are the main kind of researchers. Um, the Maya are incredibly good at raising helpful kids. So kids that voluntarily want to do the dishes, voluntarily want to help with their their siblings, you know, you no no chore chart, no allowance, no no no. Some people uh, are already stopping, saying this is science fiction. <laughs> I'm I'm done with these folks, but I've seen it, and actually, that was one of the key things that I saw when we went down down there. Um, the kids, one of the families, Maria Tumburgis, she has um, five kids, three three young daughters, and they were on spring break. And one morning, I was in her kitchen interviewing her and her 12 year old woke up around 10. Um, they'd been watching a shark movie the night before, woke up, walked across the kitchen, looked at me, you know, some strange white woman in, in her mm -hmm, kitchen mm -hmm. and started washing the dishes from breakfast, like completely voluntarily. And like, I of course was like, what? Like, you know, <laughs> who is this child? And the, Maria was just like, you know, she's 12 and she should know by now what to do. And, you know, it's interesting, she wasn't surprised, but she also said, which I often think about was, it's not every day. So mm -hmm. it's this idea of like, you know, it's, it, it's not every day, but she's starting to really know what to do and do it. Um, so incredibly good at 
uh, intrinsically motivating children. It's really actually amazing how good the psychology, um, the how good what the Maya families do aligns with psychological research with, with a lot about what you, you've talked about in mm-hmm. your book. Um, and then the Inuit, um, and this has been documented really well by the late anthropologist Jean Briggs, um, are, have this incredibly sophisticated um, approach and strategy to teaching children how to control their emotions. So in particular, anger, anger control. Um, and finally, the Hadzabe in Tanzania, um, are really world experts uh, at mm-hmm. raising confident kids. So all that like childhood anxiety and depression <laughs> is just really unheard of in 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 this community. Um, kids are super super self sufficient, self reliant, and incredibly confident. So mm-hmm. the book examines really what what the parents are doing there. And it, there's been several books that have documented the parents know what, exactly what they're doing. <laughs> And it's, it's very obvious to them what other groups are not doing. So it, you get, I get into that a little bit in the book. Yeah, well, so we'll, we'll, let's jump into um, um, self-determination theory for, for in, in, in just a second. But one of the things, you know, from, from the, the, you raised two points that I think are really, are really important. Um, and I'll take a half step back and say that um, you make a point somewhere in the book that, that in the West, we think that either we're in control or the child is control. And if we give up control, you know, if they take more, we have, we have less. And it really this kind of this oppositional approach and what you mm-hmm. describe there in, in these communities is something quite, quite different from that. Um, and I think from the, from the, as, as I understand it, the psychological literature that um, we'll talk about fr- from a motivational perspective, kids need to feel that they have some control, not that they have to be in control of everything because they're, you know, little people after all. And also then from a stressor, from a stressor, anxiety or depression perspective, feeling like you have no control is, is just so, de- is so debilitating. Um, so I just, I, I love the way you frame, frame that up. Um, walk us through that, if you can, a little bit, the, the, this idea of, of, of what helps kids be intrinsically motivated. Because I'm, I'm sure, again, parents are still, you know, rolling their eyes like, right, the kid gets up and wants to do, wants to do this, just give me, you know, what, you didn't, you, you didn't go to a different country, you went to a different planet, right? <laughs> yes. But I have to say, you know, after coming back from the Maya village and reading like a, a lot of David Lancey's life research is, and he just wrote a book like two years ago that I cite um, where he shows that actually kids wanting to help is the norm around the world. Like, again, this is something really weird that happens in Western culture where kids lose the uh, desire and motivation to help. So if you look at little toddlers, you know, all around the world, even here in San Francisco, where I am, they are, they want to be helpful. Everyone knows this, right? And something happens over the next five or six years that that they lose that motivation in Western culture. So it's something actually that we're doing too, that's eroding that motivation, Mm. right? Um, So I just want to point that out. It's not just the Mayan, the the Mayan are actually more normal than, than we are um, in in that sense. I mean, the, um, so because so you make the point that kids are wired to want to help, but yeah. that we, we typically extinguish that because the ways that they want to help, they're, they're not competent to be truly helpful yet, but they want to help. And so in the Maya, you see, you talk about subtasks, you break it down, break it down, break it down. So the kids are always doing something that's actually legitimately helpful, even if in the smallest of possible ways. And that was such... Oh, I mean, there's a success coach I'm a fan of who, who makes the point that he says, anything worth doing well 
is worth doing poorly first. Mm, mm. But we somehow expect our children to be like parthenogenic, right? They're just going to all of a sudden, you know, do, do things perfectly. It's like, mm, usually things are messy first. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly right. Like, like we, we expect them to take time to learn to read and to learn to write. You know, mm-hmm. we, we expect this to take time and, that, you know, that we have to teach them slowly, step by step. And we don't get angry if, you know, a two-year-old doesn't know two plus two is four. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. parents around the world see that, have the same attitude when it comes to helping around the house and, and contributing in the home, that this is a very slow process. Um, and so, you know, anytime a kid, a lot of kids in the US want to read, you know, they take a book out and they like want to read, the parent jumps at it, right? It's like, let me read this to you. I'm excited to read this to you. And again, parents around the world, the Maya parents, the Inuit parents, take the same approach to helping. A child want, jumps in, you know, you're at the at the stove cooking, a child comes, rushes over and grabs the spoon from you. Many parents around the world say, this is the child interested in helping and learning to cook. And therefore I'm going to welcome them. I'm going to figure out a way that they can do it, that's safe and that they can contribute. And this is how I teach them over time. There's actually a study that just came out from Lucia Alcala where they interview the parents in a very similar situation. So they, it's not in the book because it, it just came out. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, they, they ask moms, they say, okay, you're doing the laundry and a two-year-old runs over and starts throwing the clothes around. Like, what do you do? And they ask European-American moms and, and they say, you know, what a, a lot of us would say, like, oh, I get angry. They're making a mess. I shoo them away. I tell them to go play. You know, I got to get this done. Um, and then they also asked Maya moms and the Maya moms say, well, you know, I'm a little angry because they're making a mess, right? I don't want to, I don't want more work either, but I'm excited because the child is interested in the task. And this, so it kind of gets to what you were talking about before the, the European American viewpoint is very adversarial, right? It's this seeing the child's motivation is kind of not nefarious, but, but not good, right? Like mm-hmm. antisocial, like they, they want to make a mess. They're, they're throwing me down. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like not good. Like they're not trying to help. Right. Yeah, yeah. But the Maya view of it is, is very cooperative and pro-social, right? So it's, it's the child wants to help, but doesn't know how. Um, and it's my job as the parent to, to show them how, just like reading or, 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 or doing math. Um, because when the child is learning, and here's also a really big part of the book, when the child is learning to do the laundry with you, it's not just learning, she's not, she or he is not just learning to do the laundry, she's learning to cooperate with you, mm-hmm. to work with you as a team, you know, to to be kind, to contribute, right? There's all these other things that go with it. And the, and the Maya mom sees that. And so the Maya mom says, okay, here's what we do. You put, you put the laundry in the basket and shows the child how to then do Mm -hmm. a very, like you say, a very small piece of the task that's, um, you know, uh, calibrated for their skill level and that they can do like Suzanne Gaskins, the anthropologist says they can do easily and quickly because a child (laughs) is much more likely to do a task, actually an adult too, if you can do something kind of easily and quickly. Right. 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 And so this breaking down the tasks into these very small amounts is so key. And I did not realize it until Rosie and I went to Tanzania when I saw how easy the moms made it like they would like huh. be like walking down to the river to get water and they would just hand rosie a bottle to carry a very small bottle 
carry this, you know, or like we get firewood and like they would just pick up a small stick, carry this, you know, and then, and that was it. Or they put a baby on my back. They'd be like, carry this. <laughs> you know? wow. And yeah, and it was just no questions. It was no like fuss or muss, like, oh, can you please? And all this like build up. It was just like, this is your task. And it's, and it works when I got home and I started doing this with Rosie, it's like, put this book away, you know, yeah. throw this away, go get my shoes. Like just very like, it, it just started flowing so much easier. And she started being more helpful, less resistant. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love it. I mean, cause you, you had that, you had a, I mean, so I love in the book, how candid you are about your own struggles and frustrations and, you know, your own, you know, tantrums or, you know, go along with, with Rosie's and, and, and that, that talking about, you know, kid wanting to come and help dinner, even it's going to go not well to start with. And that when you sort of, you know, when you sort of, when you push that away and didn't embrace that enthusiasm, didn't encourage the enthusiasm, even though the skills aren't there, that you were not intentionally, but, but very clearly giving the message to Rosie, I think I get this right, that her job was to do Legos, watch educational, you know, like learning videos, um, and, and wait for me to feed her. Right. And then, yes. you know, and then you, I'm you picture, you know, when she's a teenager, you know, sitting there, you know, gaming and say, mom, where's dinner? Right. It's like, and we wonder where that started. <laughs> right. And exactly right. Like, and actually David, Lan this is David Lancey's big theory, right. Is that that erosion of the emotive, like, so you're the little toddler, like lots of psychological experiments. Mm -hmm. show toddlers are incredibly helpful, right. They do these very sophisticated things like move a chair or an object away. So a person can walk, they'll voluntarily pick up something that a person drops like super couple of things that a lot of adults don't do. Right? right. And over time that goes away in Western culture by about six or seven middle childhood. And one of the key things he thinks that the reason for that is, is this shooing away, right. That like, mm. you know, every time the child try the young kid tries to help and you push them away and say, go play. Eventually they get the message. This task yeah. isn't for me. Right. I'm my, my purpose in this family is not to help with the laundry. It's not to do the dishes. And by about six or seven, they're kind of convinced about it. Um, mm. Lucia Alcala has actually shown kind of this effect in the lab. Um, very interesting study with, with siblings where the older child kind of behaves like the parent, shooing the child away, um, pushing the child's arm away from a task. Oh, that, was, that was a hard story to listen to. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Sad. And I mean, it's what I do too, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. especially if you think about cooking, right? Like she, Rosie would come over and grab something and I would push her arm away, right? Um, and, um, and so over time, you're exactly right. The child says, well, what is my role in this family? Well, it's, it's to do schoolwork, which is great. You know, all the kids mm. in the book go to school, but mm. it's, you know, also like you say, to play, to, to do my own individual tasks and achievements. So there's a big hmm. focus on individual achievements, right? And the book, we're trying, and then other cultures, we're trying to say, well, you know, maybe there should also be some focus on, on group, group work, group mm -hmm. achievements. Mm -hmm. And because here's the thing, this is what I think a lot of us don't realize is like children, homo sapien children, there's a lot of good data to support that homo sapien children have evolved to, to work with their family. Right. And that that's one of the reasons why homo sapiens are here is because we are so cooperative. And I think when kids work with you and learn to work with you and cooperate with you, it not only connects you to the child, which again is very motivating, but I think it gives this child this incredible sense of like purpose and identity, right. And confidence. And I see it with Rosie, like when we really collaborate and she's really helping me, 
our relationship is so wonderful and there's just such a peacefulness to it. And it's what I saw in the, those mine homes, this lack of resistance, right? Because mm. the kids have been taught to work together with the family and it's not this nagging or this bickering or, you know, it, it's this very fluid thing that the child has learned slowly over time. But I have to say the parent also knows how to collaborate. And that was something that was hard for me to really realize was like, I wasn't collaborating with her, right? I wasn't, I wasn't watching what she was doing and seeing the contributions she was making and then building off of them. I thought all the information came from me. All like I knew everything, right? Like when we were cooking, I am the source of information. When in fact collaborating means both parties are the source of information mm. and both parties mm -hmm. have something valuable to give. And so to really learn to co collaborate with her and teach her to collaborate, I've had to value what she was doing and her ideas, not always take them or accept them, but at least value them and listen to them and, and, and acknowledge them. Hmm. I love that. Um, I will, I'll, um, I wanted to have you then sort of t take that and kind of segue into talking about this model of motivation, because when this collaborative, this, this working together is really that connection piece that, that is just, you know, wended throughout these, Huge. these cultures, right. But they're, but they're, they're, they're two other parts to this model. So you want, can you talk us through that? Yeah. So the first is connection. Like you say, like the child needs to feel like they're bonded or somehow, you know, um, working together with with the person they will work much harder right if this comes from straight from your book they will work much harder for a person that they feel like they're connected to um yeah. and and i think personally for me that means like i just said valuing them as a source of information so a lot of my parents will tell you that the child has something to teach them Hmm. Um, and I remember one of the moms, uh, Teresa, told me, I, it, this was deep in my tape that, that I found right before the book came out, where she says, her little girl, um, Juanita, she says, you know, Juanita comes home and does her homework right away. She's six. Juanita comes home and does her homework right away. She's the smallest kid. And she says the whole family looks to her for that. You know, like the whole family looks to her to that, like, that's the way we do it. And we look to Juanita. So Juanita was contributing to the whole family by this one little tiny thing, right? Huh. It's like, like so powerful, right? Like, so what are you looking to your like six-year-old for, right? <laughs> for inspiration <laughs> or knowledge, right? Like it makes you wonder they're doing something that they can teach you. And so I think connection really is about that, like valuing their contributions. Okay, so number two is, um, competency, right? right? So this feeling that you know um, what you're doing, that you're pretty good at what you do. It's not too hard. It's not too easy. Yeah. And in the, in the West, we like to, I think we like to, um, to, to make children feel confident by praising them, which, um, which does work sometimes. I don't think it works quite as much as we think it does. But in many, many cultures, parents do not praise their child or very, very small amount, like a little bit of an eye, eye raise or, you know, a little bit of a smile, a little head nod, um, maybe a little bit of, you know, that's helpful. Because um, you talked about acknowledgement rather than praise, right? Yes, I see this, right? right? I see that right. you're contributing that, you know, and it doesn't have to be like, what would you say? Good job trying or whatever. The scores are. Right, right. Or just very performative thing, yeah, right? Which yeah, children yeah. can, but you know, it's not just about the words. I, it is also about accepting the work, which this really changed Rosie and I's relationship. So um, I tell a story about the kebabs in the book. We're like, I'm making kebabs one Sunday. Um, and I say, come on over and help me, Rosie, you know, come help me. That's a very 
um, common phrase around the world. Come help mm-hmm. me, come help me, my child. Um, and she comes over and she stands on the stool and she starts making the kebabs and she starts making like this giant chicken kebab that like used <laughs> all of the chicken, like from the entire chicken. That, that wasn't my had. plan. <laughs> that was not my plan. And I kind of did, you know, what I usually do is like, that's not right. You know, very adversarial. Like, what are you doing? Um, we're going to run out of chicken. And just do it my very, way. Exactly. I know what's right and you're wrong. <laughs> And, you know, of course, she starts screaming and crying and runs off and is completely unmotivated. And I started writing this part of the book. And and I started this is when I started realizing I'm not collaborating with her. Like, mm. I think I know the way and it's my way or the byway, right? Like, as, long as, she, highway. as long as she does in my way, we're collaborating. Right. And so I was I was like writing this up and, and I was like, you know what? I'm not contributing with her because I'm not valuing her her side of things. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, t- I set up the whole experiment again, kebabs, everything. And I said, come Rosie, come help me. And she didn't want to help me. She was like, Mm-mm, I don't want to help. Um, and, um, and you know, I tried to convince her and she finally comes over and she starts to make her all chicken kebab, but this time it has a little bit of vegetables in it. And so I'm like, okay, okay, that's okay. And, and I accepted her version of the kebab. Um, she kind of even like she's sitting here looking at me she kind of even like started smiling she was like i took the kebab and i put it on the plate with the other kebab Mm -hmm. so i i accepted her contribution and when lucia alcala the researcher read this part of the book she she commented it she circled it and she said she could finally see her work she could Mm. finally see her contribution to the family um and and lucia thinks that that is really what motivates kids is seeing what they do and how it helps the family. And that this is the like way more powerful than praise. And she kind of smiled, Rose kind of smiled and kind of had some confidence. And then by God, goodness, she started making the kebabs the way I was telling her to make them. Like I, I, it was incredible. It was like, she needed to like do it her way. And then like, she kind of decided, okay, I'm going to join the family. And we started making kebabs. Like, you know, as, as Lucia says, as one organism with multiple Mm. hands working Mm. together in this very nonverbal way. And it was really beautiful. And it lasted about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things is that if I circle back to your point about how, about, you know, anxiety and depression and in our part of the world compared to other parts of the world, that, that for her to know, and she can with her own eyes, see that I've helped, I did it, I've contributed, right? As opposed to good job, Rosie, you know, um, we know that in psychology, the, the idea of an internal versus an external locus of control within, within my head, within my bones, I know I'm helping mom, you know, I, I, I gave mom, a, now she, she has two more, two, two more kebabs, go me, as opposed to waiting for that, that praise. I mean, it's really, it's, it's so interesting because it's, it's so profound psychologically and such a, and such a small shift for us, you know, taller people to make, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. A small, I have to say it's, um, it is a small shift. It is a big mind shift, right? Yeah. Because it, it means just like you said very earlier, I'm not a hundred percent in control, right? right I have right. to like, let go of some of that, like, right. To really collaborate with somebody. I, she, she has to be someone, right. There's gotta be this kind of right. give or take a little bit. And some, right we're not going to do everything she says, but, but I'm also right. not going to not listen to it. Right. So I, right. I, it's easy. It sounds very easy, but I do think it is hard. It's simple. It's not easy. Right. Exactly. You know, it's simple. It's not easy. Yeah. yeah. And it almost well, feels a little bit like jumping off a cliff. 
because it's like, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> the yes. whole kitchen's going to be, no, but it's not, it's not. It, it, I think, um, I think the kids become competent, much com more competent very quickly. If you give right. them a little bit of space to kind of explore and step back a little bit, like I say in the book and let them try and do their thing and then you can fix it. You can right. guide him, but just right. don't throw it out. Don't ignore right. it or just completely redo it because then you're completely um, rejecting their contribution. Right? right. Or, and I love that. I hadn't, or give them fake work to do. Like, you know, give them, give them, a, you know, give them work that actually isn't, isn't like, like they're too, you know, simple or foolish to, to, to yeah. know the difference. Yeah, they know. They know, right? They know if you like, I think some of the examples that researchers have found is like a, a, a mom or dad will sweep the floor and then hand the child the broom or wipe the table and then, right? Like, right? Or, or give them fake foods to like cut and stuff. Yeah. Like, whereas all around the world, parents will give children like real things to, to, to play with. Like a lot of the yeah. Maya moms would give Rosie um, masa to practice like on the side or cloth or, you know, real. It might not be, they're not doing the real task because it's too hard, but they have real pieces of equipment. So we've covered connection and competency. competency. And the and third this is the big one. <laughs> this one, yeah, this is, <sighs> I know. I center myself. No, I've been thinking about it all night. Um, autonomy, right? Autonomy, this idea that, uh, there's lots of debate about exactly what autonomy means, but this idea that you feel like you have some control over your choice or you're in control over that choice. Like I'm doing this task, not because I'm being forced to do this task. Right. Um, nobody, it's funny because nobody likes to be told what to do. Adults don't like, right. You, right? <laughs> and yet we find it so easy to tell other people what to do. It's so interesting. Thanks for listening to prep talks. Today's episode is sponsored by the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. The authors Dr. William Stixrude and Ned Johnson have 60 years combined experience talking to kids one-on-one, -on -one, and in their latest book, they share new ways to handle specific and thorny topics. Things like delivering constructive feedback to kids, discussing boundaries around technology, anxiety from current events, and more. What Do You Say is a manual and a map that provides specific, science-based guidance for communicating effectively with children, teens, and young adults about the topics that matter most. The thing that I find so interesting about the self-determination theory of you know, connectedness, competency, and autonomy is that these, you know, according to the 1,500 plus you know, studies, as you know, these are foundational psychological needs. It's not Michaeline. It's not Ned. It's not. It's not Rosie. It's not Matt. It's. 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 It, this is. This is humanity, right? Yeah. <laughs> this it's one. It's not you just know. the weird people. It right. is it's across. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You know. No, I mean the autonomy one is. Um, I was thinking about this a lot last night, no, preparing for this podcast. Um, I think I didn't really understand how much autonomy children and adults have in in other cultures. Um what we kind of think of as autonomy here is nowhere even close to what I saw elsewhere. And it really um, hit home when we were in Tanzania with the Hadzabe, like just what autonomy meant there to the children mm. um, and what it looked like. Um, 
I, I thought I was giving Rosie autonomy. You know, I'd visited the Inuit, the Inuit, I'd visited the Maya, I'd visit, you know, I was like, oh, well, I'm doing this autonomy thing. And then when we got to the Hadzabe, I was like, whoa, I, I am not doing this autonomy thing at all. Um, what, 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 what part were you missing? What did you, what, what shift did you have to make? The level of involvement involvement and that I was in in Rosie's kind of every movement and mm. um so I, I I talk about it in the book there's a study um in in the Congo with a different hunter-gatherer group that just came out in January but I interviewed the author for it for the book um where she and her research partner actually follow a bunch of kids around for like nine hours mm. and write down everything that caretakers say to them and um and first of all, the smaller ones get more um, commands and almost, I think like 75% of what the caretakers say to them is requests for help. So, huh. so this is this idea of teaching children very early, like as toddlers to cooperate and work together. So, you know, go grab the machete was actually one of them, right? Or like, you know, hold the water bottle, hold this cup, like these very simple tasks that we are talking about. So almost all of the commands are this, very little praise, very little feedback, very or very little criticism, just mostly like requests for help, which teaches the child over time to do these tasks and work together. But the other thing was, is that younger children got more of them than older kids. This idea being that when she's 12, she knows what she should do. You don't mm. need to tell her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, you, you get an eye roll from a teenager. Um, but on average, children got told something th- three times per hour, three times. That's it. The parent never said anything else to the child and is your guess is it like three times a minute in, in <laughs> yes. san francisco what's your guess so i have done the experiment on myself and i took rosie to this woodworking class right before the pandemic and i would do it with the parents there and one dad was clocking in at like yeah like two <sighs> or three a minute uh, like with uh, this kid and it was hard to watch but then i would do it yeah. on myself and i wasn't i thought i was better but like i wasn't much better because i was still like little comments you know, little directives, little like, bup, 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 you know, and it was just, I real. I actually recorded myself a bunch of times and mm. counted them. And, and like I say in the book, I was just like a nagging ninny and super bossy compared to like the Hadzabe parents. And, um, and then what I found out was that anytime there was conflict between me and Rosie, I would just move to this three commands an hour mode. Um, and, you know, I could still use nonverbal you know, like yeah, yeah. facial expressions, taking yeah. action, touching her, you know, physicality. Um, but, but I would just, you know, start my watch and be like, you got three, Mike Lean. Pick them well. <laughs> she was wisely because you got three. And you know, I usually use them up in like 10 minutes. And then, you know, then I, then I would relax and I would shut up and Rosie would relax and our relationship would become so much more pleasant. Mm. And, um, and this really changed me and Rosie because I just did not realize how much I was bossing her around. I really thought I wasn't, but I, I really was. It's fascinating because you have a line in the book, you say something like, um, particularly for little children, that, that words feel like lectures. Yes. And, and super stimulating, right? Like super yeah. like high energy, no matter really what. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and particularly when you talk about that, I was fascinated reading about, um, the Inuit uh, and uh, and and how well they manage their 
emotions, right? Mm. And you make the point, this I think is important. It's not about suppressing, it's not about suppressing anger, like, because we know that's not healthy psychologically, but in many ways, you know, how to, um, and in some ways not to experience emotion, right? Um, and so this is a core executive function, right? The ability to reframe, the able, the ability to look at it, you know, to, 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 um, Look at it. Look, look differently at what we're experiencing, or and right. and and just to re, and to re, and to reframe it, right? To have that emotional um, flexibility. Can you just talk a little bit generally about executive functions? Because you know, I'm sure in San Francisco and Washington D.C., you know, every every parent of every every kid is, you know, oh, this is all they think about is executive functions because <laughs> you need that to do all well in standardized tests or 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 whatever. But we probably also need them to navigate life and to work well with other, you yeah. know, work well with other folks. And that and I so I just love that that was something you brought up in the book. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, the Inuit kids, I mean, in this little town Kugarak that we were in were had an incredible executive function. The nine-year-olds had more executive function than me. I mean, this has been well documented that mm. Um, Westerners aren't so high on the executive function scale, even the adults, <laughs> compared to many other cultures. Um, but this idea of being able to kind of pause instead of reacting, that kind of pause and think before you react, um, you could, I could see with the, even the, li- the little one, of course, not the toddlers, but the you know right. five, six, seven-year-olds. Um, and what the mo- moms and dads there, both the moms and the dads, they're really kind of have taught me in multiple places up in the Arctic, I've been in three different parts across kind of all of North America, is this idea that of looking at children in their their actions, their motivations, which we've kind of already touched on a little bit in a way that's pro-social and positive versus kind of nefarious and um, antisocial. So for instance, we have, so that whole idea, I think, um, is, you know, is to have less anger towards children. So a child misbehaves and does something, you're not get angry and suppress it, but you start off with less anger to begin with. And I'm telling you this works because I was a very angry person and now I have some anger, but way less. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And the idea here is like, we have this, these kind of, I call them myths or folk tales because they really are about young children, like little ones, toddlers up to like five, six, um, that, that they're pushing buttons, that they're pushing testing boundaries, that they're manipulating us. Even my sister told me like when Rosie was a baby that she was manipulating me as a baby, mm. a baby manipulating me. Mm. And there's no data that tells us these things are true. They are really um, folk, to- folk tales in our culture. And a lot of other cultures have different folk tales that that help the parents have less anger towards the child and, and respond to a child in a way that has more compassion, more empathy, and a lot less anger. And what that does is it teaches the child that response, right? So if mm. I tell that Rosie, so if Rosie's doing something like she hits me or, you know, the way she was acting here, if, if, you know, if I say, oh my gosh, she's manipulating me, she's testing boundaries, then my response to her is going to probably be pretty adversarial and probably cause a conflict or at least elevate the resistance right. that's already there. But if I say to myself, Rosie wants to help, Rosie wants to be involved in the podcast, Rosie wants to be close to me. I mean, most of the time, little kids just want to be close, right? They just want to be near their parent physically. Then I come at her with a lot more softness and empathy and compassion and, you know, okay, these are the rules you can stay, but these are the rules, right? Because it's not just about letting them go 
haywire and doing whatever they want. The, the goal really is to integrate them into our lives, right? And integrate them into the work. And so that involves me teaching her, right? So it's like, yeah, you yeah, do yeah. the yeah. rules, you can stay. Um, and so this kind of shift in perspective of a child's motivation from antisocial to pro-social, I think really helped me have respond to Rosie in a way that, that was kinder, softer. And then instead of elevating the situation and causing more conflict, causing more resistance, I bring the situation down, right? Mm. And she comes mm. down with me. So I'll never forget there when we were in the Arctic, you know, she had terrible tantrums as two, two, three-year-old. Mm-hmm. And she had several in the Arctic. And one of the moms, Elizabeth Tukumiak, who did all the interpretation for the book, she showed me how I was supposed to, I should respond to Rosie. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, I yeah. was responding with lots of words, like, are yeah. you okay? What's wrong? You know, please stop. And then you eventually I'd be yelling at her. And that was just you know, the motion got higher and higher and we both got more and more angry. And Elizabeth would just bring everything down. Like, bear, like, like, <laughs> you, well, well, I mean, you, you, you read the line, like, you know, the energy to point of like Fred Rogers stoned. Yes, <laughs> I yes, 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 exactly. I mean, the Inuit culture, people are very calm to begin with, like yeah, calmer yeah. than we really, really kind of imagine in some ways. But but even when Rosie would go high and get really upset, Elizabeth would go even lower. And like, it was just incredible to watch Rosie's response to that because she would just kind of immediately go there with her and just join her in this calm state. And I was just like, wow, I have been doing this completely wrong. It's so, you know, this, I mean, I, this is one of my favorite points in, 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 you know, in psychology generally, and certainly one that you shine such a light on the stories, um, you know, Tina Payne Bryson's point that, that emotions are contagious, right? So in our, in our book, The Self-Driven Child, we have a chapter in there about being a non-anxious presence. And so I'm just, I'm just lapping it up when I'm reading about these Inuit, Inuit folks and just thinking, oh my goodness, because, you know, why well, even the Navy SEALs say, right, their mantra is calm is contagious. Yeah, right. calm is contagious, and so I just love that idea of these of these people being the, uh, you know, the equivalent of of stress sponges when little people are are more stressed. And um, to kind of circle back to a point you made about the minds that that that. that of of course, children are incompetent, right? You know, they 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 don't know yet how to to make this. Though so they have, they're going to do it poorly before they're going to make the chicken the kebabs all wrong before they make them the right way. I'm doing a hard time, of course. Um, but but then you would talk about that in terms of emotional regulation. That of course they're acting childish. They're children, and I thought it was such a, a important reminder that that we have a tendency, you know, we we alleged grownups to think that little children should have those skills. When, of course, emotional regulation and the ability to put things in perspective, these are developable skills and they just take time. That's exactly right. And if, if you know, uh, even um, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett said to me, you know, suppressing your anger when you're already upset is really hard, like yeah. really, really hard. And we expect two-year-olds to do it, right? right. We, just calm down. They, just calm down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just stop, right? Just calm down. <laughs> right? Yeah, we yell at them to calm down. Like the Inuit parents told me, like, this is, it just takes time. And one of the moms said, you know, like, if she's not listening, she's not ready, you know? And, and oh, I love that. I know. So good. So good. It's yet yeah, so hard. So hard to remember, you know? Um, but it's just like with math, right? If she doesn't know, you know, division, she's not ready. She needs more practice. And I think they see, 
these tantrums, these moments, these hot button moments as these opportunities really for the child to watch you be calm and to learn. Like I really, that's kind of the difference. I saw the tantrums as like, oh my God, this horrible moment that I needed to stop as quickly as possible. And like, you know, whereas they see it as like, oh, she's upset. I'm going to show her how to be calm. I'm going to show her how to calm down. And this is going to teach her. This is, this is really like a learning opportunity. And I tell you, it works. It totally works. <laughs> well, and that was, you know, a, a, a theme. I'd love to just take a moment. And, and um, so for, for, you know, folks who are listening, this may have little folks, they may have kids, kid, my kids are 17 and 19. Um, and, you know, so some of this work may be already behind us, but we still have children who, you know, we can all still act child, childish. Um, and you talk about, you know, rather than using praise, rather than be controlling, rather than using logic, which doesn't calm hard emotions, about this model of practice, model, and acknowledge. Mm. And at first I'm sort of like, um, okay. And it took me a while. I mean, it was helpful to have this being repeated in different, can you just sort of walk us through what this is, why it works, and maybe maybe your favorite story with Rosie. Thank you so much for asking me this. You are the first person <laughs> to are ask me this. Me? I know. I I think this is like a a deep deep because this is something that I came to realize very late in the game, and I actually threaded it throughout the book. I think this is how cult like this is enculturation, like this idea of like how we teach children you know, the elements of our culture, what our culture values, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the right behavior. This is how every culture teaches their children this. Um, so it's model. Children learn by watching you. There's no doubt. It's not what you say. It's really not. It is what you do. Um, down to the way you, the way my husband wipes the sink after he yeah. does the dishes. Like Rosie does this. Like we never taught her that. But like she does it. I, yes, I have to, does. I, I want to jump in for a second. There's a, there's a, there's a group in, in DC called the Parent Encouragement Program. It's a parenting education group. Um, Kaki Lewis, Catherine Lewis, you may know, Catherine, Catherine Reynolds. Anyway, part of this group. Um, and they do great, great work. And there's an educator there named Patty uh, Ch uh, Chancellor, uh, who is, you know, probably 20 years older than I. And we were interviewing her, getting their help for our first book. And she asked me, she says, what's the most important parenting tool? Mm. And I sat there like, you know, like a seventh grader being called on in class. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm gonna, I don't know. I'm going to fail this test. Oh. And she just looks at me and smiles. And she says, I, I believe that it's modeling. So, yep. Okay. <laughs> I think it is. I think, I think it is. And that, that's the thing. Like if they're having a tantrum and you're yelling, Yep. What are you modeling, right? If you say nothing, if you, if you do nothing, it's, it's better. Just do nothing. Um, and then the second thing, which I think is less talked about directly in parenting books these days is this idea of practice. practice. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. giving child the, an opportunity to practice this skill. And, the, and so this idea of giving children little small tasks, that, that you're practicing helping, you're practicing working together. Get, you know, calming the child down when they're upset, helping the child calm down. That's practice, right? If I sit there and argue with Rosie, like, you know, and negotiate and argue what she's practicing arguing, right? Like, like everything that we do with a child, like you're giving them an opportunity to practice something. So choose it wisely, basically, right? right? It's like... Um, and for folks and this, who listen to this, I mean, you who may, who may feel like they, they, their kids negotiate everything with them. There is a place for kids to, you know, cause they're practicing that skill with us so they can do that in the world. But if you feel like everybody thinks in negotiation, read the book, there's a path out of that, out of that, out of that, you know, hole that you found you've dug yourself into. Yes. And I, and, and some of it becomes this like endless loop where you're not right. really negotiating, you're just arguing. Um, 
And then the last thing is this, which I say it's like a cup of modeling, a cup of a cup of modeling, a cup of practice, and like a tablespoon of of, of acknowledging. So mm -hmm. this idea that you're pointing the child in the right direction, either verbally or through some other tools, but like that's helpful. That's not helpful. <laughs> that's kind. That's not kind. So like really kind of pointing out. Um, when the behavior, the behavior you want occurs or when the behavior you don't want occurs, this kind of, this is, this, you find this everywhere in every culture, right? That's not over the top praise, but acknowledging either through accepting, not accepting, walking away, ignoring. I mean, oh my gosh, the Inuit moms and dads were incredible in ignoring Rosie's misbehaviors to the point where Rosie knew immediately that she was being ignored and immediately stopped. When I, Very and powerful I, tool. I just, you know, I think I kept hearing that as, you know, in, in, in my head, I think of if you already have a storm, don't put more energy into it, right? Exactly. You don't, you don't calm the storm with that, right? And you're acknowledging it when you, when you, even if it's negative, even if you're being right. like, stop, don't do that. You're still really, really emphasizing that behavior. Yeah, right? yeah, and so yeah. the ignoring is this like the opposite, right? It's like, yeah. it's really saying like, I don't, and in such a like non-confrontational way. Um, yeah. It's, it's another big, powerful one. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple minutes and just and ask about, um, um, you, you got some pushback, right? You got some blowback of, you know, you know, you're romanticizing these cultures and, 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 you know, it's, it's not, well, what are we supposed to do? I don't live there kind of, you know, that kind of pushback. And, um, uh, it was interesting to me because your book, again, is these beautiful accounts of, of kind of the what and the how, um, because of the few things that I think I know, uh, you know, I, I kept seeing and imagining all the science that undergirds all of this, you know, yeah. all, it's brain science, right? But, yeah. but you, you weren't writing, you know, a, a, a book on, on brain science, you know, those, you, <laughs> that'd be a different audience, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, so and and, and you... I want to say like the, the experts in the book, I really wanted to be the parents and, and right, like I wanted the science to kind of support their ideas, but they are the experts. I think that this is, I think this idea made some people uncomfortable. And I think that's why I got pushback. But I'm basically saying that these people are world experts on parenting because they really are. They're, they're incredible parents. Because you make the point, they're not, they're not frozen. They're not, you know, you, the, the kids are sitting there, get up and, and do the dishes at, you know, at age 12 on the first day of spring break, but also has the iPhone out of her, you know, hanging in her back, back pocket and watching shark movies, right? Right? Right. right, right, right. No, I mean, they're all incredibly modern societies for whatever, you know, ter term that means. Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, how how yeah, much did you come I, away? How much did you come away thinking? Um, how much of these these models, these more successful approaches? How much of this is, um, you know, the culture that that you know has has been maintained? How much of it might even be epigenetics? Right? You know, I mm, I, I, I I took mm. note. You know, you were talking about. Um, I was, I was always a fear of, I was always afraid of my father's anger. Right. And so in the mm. same way that you can have cultures that are the Inuit who are very self-controlled and they don't, they don't get irked pacific. because it's just, it's yeah. Very pacific. Thank you. That was the word, the, the perfect word. Um, you know, and, but you also have folks who I was thinking if you've read JD Vance's book, uh, um, uh, hillbilly elegy and he mm. talks about you know kind of all the folks through appalachia and uh where, where his family is from and he said everybody in my entire family can go from zero to effing homicidal in less than a second yeah. right and so it's it's yeah. you know it's a stress it's a stress response and so i i was wondering how much um 
because some of what goes on in, you know, for, for what you grew up with or your family or, you know, certainly cultures or, or even pocket, you know, pockets of this city or that country that are under chronic stress, they're going to, they're going to behave very differently. I kept, I kept thinking about that. Did you, did that go through your head when you're writing this or blow back oh, afterwards? Absolutely. You could write a whole book on this. Yeah. Um, I think that there, I think to be very blunt and honest, I think that our, Western culture, European American culture has a lot of intergenerational trauma based around this. Yeah. You know, that we in you know, just to be honest, we have a lot of conflict some in our in our culture, you know, yeah, a lot yeah, yeah, of violence. Yeah. You know, I think in I read in the New Yorker a few years ago, you know, one of the historians called us a warrior tribe, right? Like a lot yeah. of our culture is based on on violence. And 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 I think that does get carried down from a generation to the next and and i i'm i am hopeful that the reckoning that we've kind of seen and we're yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of all going through right now in the, in the country will shine a light on this right mm -hmm. that it, mm -hmm. it's it's not just other races and ethnic groups that have suffered from white violence right it right. is our own culture that has suffered from white violence um right and Barbara Rogoff, the first, one of the first interviews I ever did, she's, a, she's an anthropologist in UC Santa Cruz and studies the Maya communities. She said, there is something incredibly adversarial and conflictual about Western culture. Hmm. And, um, and she said, just look how this country was developed and created, right? Yeah. And those words just rang in my ear, like the whole time I was writing the book, because it's like, is there a way, and I'm not talking about you know physical violence with kids or anything i'm just talking about kind of like this adversarialness that we bring to our relationships and yeah and it's like i think in many other cultures people try to interact in ways that doesn't create conflict that doesn't right. create anger and they're still getting the same points across so one of the inuit moms who i actually just saw yesterday she's in san francisco mm -hmm. she told me she read the book and at the end she said well the book is she loved the book but she said you know you really don't need this michael she said she said, all you need to do is when you're, when you're thinking, when you're interacting with somebody, think to yourself, the way I interact right now, is it going to help the relationship or is it going to hurt the relationship? Mm. And this has just been so powerful for me. Um, you know, is there a way I can get my same point across the same idea, but in a way that's going to help and connect us versus create conflict and, and push each other away. And to me, that has been like a game. It's very hard sometimes, but it's that executive function. Let me pause, let me wait, and let me figure out a way to do this that's not conflictual and not adversarial. Oh, I love that. I love that. Which is basically your new book. Yeah, well, no, in many ways. you're very, you're very, <laughs> you're very kind. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it was when I was preparing for this, I had in the back of my head, two things were going through my mind. One was um, all the work of Robert Putnam uh, of Bowling Alone, if you know this, of, of kind of how, how you know, the idea that you know, huge pop pop proportion of the American population used to used to bowl. It's just it was kind of a social thing. Mm. And there was more there was more church going this and, mm. and that and that when people are much more connected, we're kind of that allo parent thing that you talked about where because yeah. yeah, you, you said as a John Gillis who says, you know, mothers have no mothers have never been so overburdened or have never been so burdened as they are now because, you know, as, as you described, you had to do this all alone. Yeah. And I know that, you know, Hillary Clinton cut all this guff for saying it takes a village. Well, it really does go better, right? I can't remember who the education writer is who, who said that any, any society that claims to care about its children should care about its parents, mm. right? 
and so you know so i i think about how to you know how do you how how do you help other parents with the work that you're doing how do we help each other am i to your point am i helping this relationship because if i can help michaeline it's going to help Rosie, right? You know, and, 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 and all, and all the way through, as opposed to, um, as opposed to some of the, some, some of what's going on right now could be, could be better, could be better. I think (laughs) I I have a lot of optimism. I think bringing in more diverse voices, whether, you know, it, it can only improve things in this, in this direction. And as to your point about romanticizing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for bringing that back. I didn't actually respond to it. Um, you know, there have been many books written about um, Danish parenting, German mm-hmm. parenting, mm-hmm. French parenting. <laughs> and I know that there's some romanticism in those books. I have sure, a very yeah, good yeah, example yeah. about that yeah. in terms of the French parenting. Um, and the point, like I say in the book, the point of this book is not to criticize and raise problems. You know, it's like, I think of it like a cookbook. You don't write the bad recipes. <laughs> you write about the great recipes. And yeah. um, our, our media and our society has criticized these many of these cultures in, uh, enough sufficiently yeah, yeah. and you can find that elsewhere and really my point was to look at the at the wonderful things that they do the really the like one of mom said the parenting gyms you know in right, these cultures right. every culture has them um and i have to tell you that everyone in the book has read the portions that they are in and um approved and yeah like sally just emailed me and it's like i'm almost done i love every word so like <laughs> I don't know, you know, romanticism. Well, no, and, and, and and I don't, you know, I don't, I I can't pretend to speak for, for, for those folks, but I, because some of the advice and some of the wisdom is so not what's currently being done and, and can feel counterintuitive, it, um, it, I think people can feel like it feels though that's an implicit criticism. What what I've we've, what I've been doing all these years. What do you mean? I mean, you right. know. Um, and so right. that might be sure. that might be part of it as well. But um, um, I mean, certainly the thing that that the the takeaway in all of this, um, for me is just is just you you, can, you were so you were so open and honest and brave about your story and your and your 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 lesser moments with Rosie. But just the just the opportunity to pick up to put a new set of tools in your toolbox, yeah. and to have a relationship that with your child that is one more effective as you start the book, with, and two more loving as you end it with. I mean, who doesn't want that? I know, I know, and and actually, Suzanne told Suzanne Gasson told me this one of the first interviews too. She said, you know, it really at the end of the day is about expanding the toolbox, yeah. right? We have this very thin toolbox that's the right way to parent, and it doesn't work for all kids. Works for some, great, but for Rosie, it didn't. It didn't work. And yeah. what this is kind of what works, and try it. I mean, a lot of the parents would tell me like, what well, depends on the kid? It depends yeah. on the kid, yeah. you know, and yeah. and. It, and you just got to try things and there's not one size fits all for sure. But I will say almost all children want to be with their parents, work with their parents and be involved in their world. If that's one thing you can take from the book is like, welcome your child into your world for a few hours each week. And I swear your relationship, that is how they are made. I love it. I love it. Well, I can't say it better than that. So we will leave leave it there. Uh, Michael and Duclef, what a pleasure to spend this time talking with you. Uh, and, and the book, uh, Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Thank. Oh, I love your I love your work. I love your thinking. And, and thanks for bringing this book to us. Oh, thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.